Hello. In the final months of 2014, the most downloaded podcast on iTunes wasn't on politics or on current affairs. It was no grand historical narrative, and it certainly wasn't a comedy. The podcast was called Serial, by now downloaded over 80 million times, and it told, over the course of 12 long episodes, in intimate detail, the investigations of reporter Sarah Koenig into the murder of a single teenage girl in Baltimore 15 years previously. Whodunits have been a feature of popular fiction for over 150 years. Extremely popular fiction, indeed, with Agatha Christie battling only William Shakespeare for the most numerously sold author of fiction of all time. Yet, such a detailed serialisation of real-life murder cases is a much newer phenomenon, and, from a certain perspective at least, a rather morbid one. Why do we as human beings seem to find these distressing stories so fascinating? Could podcasts such as Serial warp our perceptions of the realities of criminal justice? What responsibilities should such documentary makers have when presenting these cases? And is even the very act, the act of making the lives of such vulnerable people primetime entertainment, can that ever be ethically justified? The success of programmes such as Serial, and also Netflix's endlessly controversial show Making a Murderer, poses many questions to the professional scholar of the public's relationship with the criminal justice system, the criminologist. And today we are joined by three graduate students in criminology from Oxford University to discuss precisely these matters. Kate Evans from St Hilda's College, Liz Coleman from St Cross College, and Jess Joe from St Cat's College. Thank you very much all for joining me. I guess many of our listeners might not have met a criminologist before or necessarily know too much about what criminology entails as a discipline. Um, Kate, do you want to start us off by giving us some broad feel of what criminology involves? Yeah, of course. So I think one of the things we find as criminologists is that people have quite widespread misconceptions about what criminologists do. So uh, a lot of misconceptions have been that we're forensic psychologists, we'll pick apart a criminal's brain. Um, that's not something that criminologists tend to do. We're much more uh, focused on the legal system, the prison system, and uh, how crimes are perceived. So in short, I would say it's why laws are made, why they are broken, and what we should do about it. Uh, and we are not sort of CSI uh, <laughs> investigators with uh, microscopes and such things. If I understand correctly, more a, a study of the system than the individual psychologies of the agents involved in a particular individual crime. Exactly. Exactly. Is that, yeah. that correct? Uh, Jess, so what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you, um, I guess, because you're doing a master's at the moment, right? So yeah. You... Um, well, I did an undergrad in criminology as well. And um, I think the difference between then and now is we're focusing a lot more on applied criminology. So what I did for three years before was a lot of theory building. So I felt like it was a lot to do with sociology. So it's focusing on how societies function and why societies have crime. So how societies go bad or break down. But what I find fascinating now is we're applying everything that we've learned, including theories that seem almost irrelevant sometimes, unless you like pick really deep into it, to like, yeah, systems like Kate said, the prison, society, institutions as well. We got our essay topics today, and I'm mostly focusing on the prison one at the moment. So we've been reading a lot about prisoners' rights, or lack thereof, and that deals with a lot of the legal side of criminology which I find personally quite difficult. I'm more on the sociology side myself. Mm. 
uh, but it's been some really good readings about like prison abolition movement and how to raise awareness about rights fits in with a sort of post-colonial approach as well so post-colonial theory which um, looks at the legacy of slavery and colonialism in the US and Europe and how that ties in with prisoners rights because in America there's a great disproportionate imprisonment of like, young black men um, as opposed to other ethnicities yeah. and I think like that really one of the things that maybe people don't understand as much is that criminology has a huge range mm -hmm. so um, you can go so I would I'm hoping to specialize in um, intimate partner violence uh, or domestic abuse as it's more commonly known um, especially in teenage relationships um, and that can you you know you can do something like that or you can do something very high you know overarching looking at court you know sentencing mm. uh, you could look at prisons you could look at individual roles within prisons so for instance prison guards there's whole realms mm. of literature on the sort of unseen aspects of the criminal justice system that we tend not to think about too much criminology can take on stop and search to you know, cyber crime you <laughs> yeah, know, that, yeah. that that's kind of the sort of thing like we can do within that range yeah i think one of the most interesting things i've come to realize about criminology is it's taking a lot of things that are usually taken for granted and then really picking it apart and so something very simple for example like prisons uh, obviously with actually with tv shows now and with all of this information everyone can kind of learn a little bit more about it and to know that it's a lot more nuanced than it appears like how it's fed to us um, but with criminology you can access it through the eyes of different people so you can like for example with prisons it the whole institution looks completely different when you look through the eyes of someone else so if you're doing research based on prisoners it will be hugely different to like comparing interviews with governors so i think what i'm trying to say is just with these issues that we've been studying it's a lot more complex than it seems and i think criminology's job is to critically approach it and then see how mm. it see how systems like this could be changed for the greater good yeah and actually building on that criminology's like we said that it's about studying legal systems and institutions and how it all works and ties together but i think also it's looking at why certain crimes are crimes and how that changes and that's something that's quite interesting and pretty cool about our subject mm -hmm. you know, it lies at the intersection of so many of the mm. uh, traditional humanities but also the modern social studies and yeah. the law as well to do mm. with your particular project it's yeah but going back kate to something you were saying earlier about how um, certain branches of criminology focus on aspects of criminal justice that many people don't see very often i guess all of us think that we see certain aspects of criminal justice very often indeed every time we watch a, a police officer drama say which you know 10 a dozen i wrote down a list mm -hmm. of about 10 that are on, uh, yeah. on at the moment so i guess two questions do you feel that the perception we get of the life of a police officer from these shows is is accurate and do you feel that the possible misconceptions that we get affect our, our relationship with the police well i think uh, so there's sort of two twofold question there and i think one thing with with police dramas is that they are they are, i mean they are dramas and so we you know and we love them as well as the, the general population does and um it's just always good to remember though that it's very unrealistic representation of what a police officer does day to day I mean, I've so I've worked in the past with the Metropolitan Police and, you know, you really have to graft very hard to become a senior detective. 
in in the police force you have to do about five years on the beat specializing before you can really rise up through the ranks which means doing often very antisocial hours um, a lot of community work um, that you know it's just not interesting to put into a drama you're gonna you know you're gonna be doing a lot of antisocial behavior complaints neighbor disputes you know community safety um, community safety policing is, is not particularly glamorous but it's the bedrock of uh, what we expect from our police forces I think so it can be difficult because I would hope it wouldn't change our relationship with an officer if we see them in the street but perhaps it would change our view of um, these high-powered and potentially maybe a bit you know messed up uh, aggressive <laughs> um, over, you know uh, over dramatic police officers when actually I think a lot of them uh, and this, you know, anyone can debate with me here. here. Uh, that it's a lot of, it's a lot of hard graft and community work, and a lot more to do with relationships than it is, to, and building them than it is actually to do with, you know, sort of running around going in cahoots with God knows what at God knows what hour and this sort of thing. Yeah, and not everyone's a Rebus. No. <laughs> or a Luther. Yeah. Well, exactly. Luther's the one. Personal yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so is, is that a, a view that you would... Um, I, I very much agree. I think that these shows kind of miss out this whole idea of police work being also very highly administrative. Yeah. Um, which, of course, is not glamorous, but is a very important part of the job that takes up a lot of the time. So you have this conflict between what would make good drama and what is a realistic description of the realities of, of the job. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you, I think they did um, quite recently a, a, a documentary on the Metropolitan Police where they followed them around and I can tell that, I can <laughs> tell they had edited it, you know, very heavily mm. because it's not interesting watching, a, you know, a police officer book through 10 offenders that they've arrested that day. But like Liz said, it's hugely important to uh, making sure that our police are held accountable, uh, that the paper trail is there, and actually that's where some of you know their most key, you know key aspects of their work comes from. It. Equally with stop and search, which I think is a very contentious. It, yeah, it's yeah. a very contentious issue, and it's very rarely put into television dramas or documentaries. It's not something the police feel particularly comfortable about broadcasting, and it's not something that people really know how to. Uh, put into a drama because yeah it's one of the greatest powers that a police officer can have it's just to stop you and ask to search you so I think that you know there's elements that just do not kind of make it into the dramatic narrative. And Jess do you feel that because these certain elements of policing are not in the narratives that people are seeing on a day-to-day -day basis it affects people's perception of the police? I think um, just building on what we've been talking a lot of these police dramas, they're, they're very much focused on like the lone wolf aspect and also what we, we kind of touched upon before as well about the, the, the kind of crimes that are portrayed in these kind of dramas and then the real official statistics of crime and I think it puts a lot of pressure and a lot of expectations on the police to, especially individual officers, to um, kind of solve the problems as they appear as opposed to like a lot of like cases, they drag on for so long because of just the sheer amount of like complexities that are involved. It's not as simple as just the next day the, the detective wakes up and then just like all the clues are there. And it's very rarely that. And like, yeah, Liz was saying earlier, it's a very administrative process as well. Mm. So I think, I, I'm not sure though about how much this really affects 
the general public, as in the whole population. It depends on the backgrounds as well of like individuals who are watching it. But then again, I'm not sure because I think each person has their own take on it. Um, I think also what the police dramas do is maybe um, incite like fear of crime that's unrealistic by portraying these offences so of I'll pick on Luther. Um, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yes. Um, but those are some serious and very scary crimes. A, a young woman hailing a cab and ending up being sexually assaulted and murdered. That's one of the stories in season two, I believe. That's not something that people should be afraid of because it, it's not going to happen, or most likely not going to happen. However, people that watch it might be a bit more afraid of offences like that, having seen it. So I, I personally have been, because I, I scare very easily. <laughs> um, but yeah, watching that makes you fear crime that isn't a realistic threat. So the statistical proportion of numbers of very violent, very serious, very scary crimes that appear in these TV shows is very, very different from the actual percentage that appear in, in, oh, yeah, in exactly. real life. Definitely. And I think, um, yeah, just, just touching on actually both the points that you've made. Um, the, so first of all, with, with the police, I think that idea that, you know, we should have something linear that's solved and done and, and dusted in, in, you know, as quick as you like. Mm. It's, it's, it's unfair, really, to mm. the way that they project it because it puts a huge amount of pressure on, on a quite a struggling public service um, that has... A lot of pressures put on them and also I do think uh, it's this expectation that society has of like oh how dare you not you know do this thing as soon as I thought you would I thought I trusted you as the police so there is that I think it comes back to that thing we we're saying of the viewpoint of police it may not affect your relationship but it may give you unrealistic expectations of what a police officer can actually do you know in most cases witnesses will drop out um, people will disappear people change addresses uh, they lose evidence, and that is everyday human behaviour. But once you put it in the context of you know a highly public, you know, and highly criticised police force, also just touching on the Luther <laughs> thing you're talking about, um, when we have crime dramas, they they really demonise offenders as mm. well. Offenders on there is no sympathy, and I mean maybe you don't want to feel sympathy, and that's why you don't have the sympathetic element. But we know from criminology and the studies that we read every day offenders prisons you know police stations are filled with quite unhappy quite ill and quite you know people with very very difficult lives who experience high levels of victimization in their own lives and if you have this sort of I, I only watched season one of Luther but that like evil woman with the red hair and <laughs> she you know it's just so binary mm. and doesn't really get to the heart of what actually drives people to offend. Well, this segues quite nicely onto this new phenomenon of these real-life mm. uh, documentary serials in which some of these rules of dramatisation that make successful fictional shows are applied to real-life dramas, yeah. but with this, this thing switched of where much more focus is on the offender mm. and their background and their vulnerability, mm. uh, which to turn certain things on its head. Um, so the one I mentioned in the introduction is Serial, and I gave a very short praise here of what, what goes on, but perhaps, um, uh, Jess, would you like to summarise for us what, to say, the first series of Serial was about? Um, it's 
I was one of probably one of like the first people to listen to it because I remember um, getting the information from a different podcast that I listened to. And then because I was doing criminology as an undergrad, then I was very interested in all of this kind of um, crime drama. So I thought I would just give it a listen. And I just remember how immediately hooked I was after the first like 20 minutes. It was the reporter Sarah Koenig who worked in the Baltimore Sun and she got a letter about a news story that she covered in the newspaper a while ago. So initially they introduced the case of Adnan Said and how he was he's currently convicted in prison for murdering his ex-girlfriend. What stuck out to me though, if I'm just going to go into like personal details now fine, yes. about uh, why I, I thought this was very interesting was they introduced the characters, I'm going to say, even though this is real life, so it feels strange to say that, um, in a in a very profiled way. So uh, Sarah introduced an ad uh, by his his religion and uh, his height. I remember hearing about how he looked and what his image was like to his classmates. And then the girl, and I just remember she was Korean and they described her as like the girl next door. And it was just, there was kind of this background story being introduced in the first like 20 minutes and I just remember being so hooked into this and then being so shocked to find out that he murdered like well he's convicted for murdering her might have been in prison for about 15 years yeah, yeah years exactly ago. so it, it was um it's very shocking to hear so I definitely wanted to hear more about it um yeah so that episode was just introducing but how it ended was it was on a cliffhanger so you kind of had to keep listening to find out a little bit more about these these two young people lives who are both essentially ruined in a way. Well, and they go into all the, the details of the family and the friends of the classmates, all the interrelationships between all, all these people. Yeah, it was like the what you were saying about the whodunit bit. Hmm. Um, the first episode, I remember, raised a lot of questions. So it brought up this case, introduced the basic facts, but then started presenting like these snippets of these two people's lives, how complicated it was for both Anad and the girl. And it was kind of already kind of poking poking the bear, if I if I may say, because I remember she interviewed some of the the classmates, and they were saying, Nad was so great, like he was a great student, he was a model son, he participated in community activities, and he was just so, like it was very shocking that he would do something like this. And then as a audience, you you feel very very sympathetic already in a way to hear. But also very cautious because from previous experience listening to, like watching this kind of drama, you know that the good person is usually the one who did it. <laughs> but except <laughs> this is... isn't a drama, this is a real Exactly. Case. But but yeah. the, the subtext is is this a miscarriage of justice? Yes. We must investigate to decide if this is a miscarriage of justice. Right. And I think so some of the things you picked up on is certainly she structured it as a story mm. because that's how you get someone to listen. And it's really interesting to see that structured around the around miscarriage of justice because I think while Serial did a fantastic job of deconstructing how he was taken into custody and then eventually blamed for her murder and whether or not he did it, she took on this role of a sleuth sort of detective and really harassed the people involved in the case that were not Adnan's family, who obviously were supportive of her investigation into the case. So Heyman Lee, who is the victim, mm -hmm. um, her family, she said, I've never tried so hard to contact a family to get them to speak on the radio. Now for them, their daughter was murdered 15 years ago and suddenly this woman who's taken an interest in the case has p 
pulled up a very traumatic time from this and i don't i'm not sure to what extent sarah told the family how she was going to present the story yeah but i remember um a couple episodes in when she was doing her monologue bit she was saying how she personally felt confused so i feel like she started this whole um investigation from the standpoint of that it was a miscarriage of justice so i I, like that that just makes it even more frustrating for the family yeah because they feel like their daughter was taken from them this person's in jail it feels like there should have been a closure and then for someone to come to try and dig it up and almost made it make it seem like you put this person in prison for no reason that must be so heartbreaking Mm. yeah it kind of serves to re-victimize the family and i think that like raising miscarriages of justice is very important and should be done when there's been a miscarriage of justice however you do need to think about the appropriate approaches to doing that and maybe something like serial wasn't yeah just coming back on that point there are methods and i think they believe that the Saudi family and, and and people who supported him believe they had tried lots of different methods and so there is room for journalism to do this mm. but it has to be responsibly done what do you feel the ethical demands on, for instance, a journalist making these investigations might be? Well, I think that the ethical underpinnings of journalism are very different to that of criminology. So there's a lot more scope for them to be a bit more snoopy and cross lines that perhaps they shouldn't in the name of journalism. And we must remember that journalism is sort of like a, a service. So people, people consume what they create. Mm. Um, you want people to take in trust so yeah they might push some boundaries that they shouldn't but then in a way um, I do understand how because I think breakthroughs in um, either policy or even in law sometimes is through the layman taking on this interest and then gaining this wider spread support for change and I think you were saying earlier Kate about how the family did, when, when, they, when she was interviewing them, the family told her about how exasperated they felt when they, they couldn't really get the criminal justice system to like listen. And then uh, the process just went on so smoothly. All of the witnesses against Said was very, it just seemed very one-sided. And the, I don't know if this will be spoiling it for anyone who's still listening to Serial, but uh, <laughs> so there was just a lot of evidence that wasn't used as well. So. Of course, because we are criminologists, we we do study a lot about the problems that are within these institutions that support our everyday life. So I think in a way, if we didn't have these like wider scope for snooping or like just revisiting old cases, then we wouldn't really be able to progress. But definitely, I think there was a line crossed in this case here with the victim family. So I think ethics definitely needs to be applied. But in a way, I, I encourage this. I, I encourage journalism to do it within proportion. <laughs> it's so unclear how it should be done because yes, of the need for the journalists to be journalists. Yes, mm. exactly. Um, why do you think we as a public seem to be so fascinated with these rather grim and gruesome stories? It's not light listening. I think there's a certain curiosity into things that we don't understand, we don't know that much about. Crime definitely is one, particularly crimes like murder, sexual assault. It's dramatic. People are interested. I mean, we certainly are. I think that's kind of how you stumble upon criminology as a subject. (laughs) And then you realise that, like, whoa, everything I believed is maybe not quite as it is. But yeah, it's quite enticing, like a morbid curiosity. Yeah. And And I think there is some danger to it in the way... um, 
I don't know exactly what sort of research has gone into this, but in replication of attacks or violence that is then repeated throughout, I think you see that a lot with um, in these states with school shootings, and they are mm, acts that like are copycat. Yeah, they're copycat mm. acts. Um, I'm I'm not sure how much this is either informed from what we've learned, or from my like original cynicism, but I think why we're interested in things that seem to shock us or repulse us in a way it's it might be something to do with reassurance of ourselves. So I think when we watch dramas like this, or we hear about uh, real life cases where someone has done something terrible, it, it, it reinforces this kind of like standard of values within us and how, oh, it's shocking because I would never do that. And I know people around me would never do that, but people still do. So then you wonder, Point. Yeah. Well, it's a deep point, but, but I, I like it very much. So suggesting mm. that this morbid curiosity is an example of fascination with the other and gaining some personal strength from, mm. in a very closed environment of just listening to a podcast on the radio, contact with something yeah. that's very foreign. Very foreign, but then at the same time with cases like Making a Murderer and Serial, you, you get to know these people, so it becomes... It's like foreign, and then you meet them, mm. and it's... Um... Well, let's move on to Making a Murderer. I, I was going to move on there next. So Making a Murderer is the even more controversial television version of what Serial made so popular. And indeed, you know, for listeners who aren't so aware of what Making a Murderer was about, Kate, would you like to give us a short preview of that series? Um, yeah, so Making a Murderer was based on the case of Stephen Avery, who was acquitted for a quite violent sexual assault on a woman in his 20s. And on his release, roughly, I think, two years later, he was uh, found guilty of murdering and raping another woman called Teresa Holbach. And Making a Murderer was a documentary made by two women who followed Stephen Avery and his family for about 10 years during this time in their lives, where the whole family was implicated in this murder. It happened on their property. And they sort of pick apart the police actions in that town and strategically place Stephen Avery as perhaps wrongfully convicted once more. And since then, his nephew, who was also convicted of conspiracy to murder alongside him, uh, has actually been released from prison as a result of the documentary and the sort of widespread outrage it, it caused. I think that happened even whilst the documentary was being aired on it, Netflix. It, yeah, yeah, so he, I think he's officially now free, but yeah, while it was airing, they started the process of releasing him because he had a very low IQ and was effectively very manipulated by police. And it's a horrible, horrible documentary to watch in a way um, because of that very reason. But again, it's the, you know, the kind of moral question, whose case do you pick to go for these documentaries? Who gets chosen and who doesn't? Stephen Avery, that case is so unique and that's why it makes a great documentary. But your average mentally ill, highly victimised, as we were saying before, serious criminal maybe would not make such a great documentary and that's why we don't choose them. Mm. There are certain issues to do with this case that play into the wider aspects in US justice to do with, with race and, and education, as I, I gather. Mm. Um, exactly like what Kate says. It's a bit depressing to think about, actually, if you, if you think about it this way. Um, as much as people in, in society, when we hear about an injustice, we all kind of feel compelled to act for it. But then what what degree of that is based on the entertainment factor of it and how much it reflects us 
So I feel like what we were discussing earlier about um, how disproportionate and out of sync the reflection is with these crime dramas and also making a murderer, the person who was the main story focus, Stephen Avery, he was um, a white man, but although from a working, yeah, yeah quite, quite a working class background, yeah, working class background and quite disadvantaged family as well. But the proportion of uh, young black men in prison is is so much greater and to what extent would that make an interesting story and to what extent if if Stephen Avery was a young black man would there be any reaction even greater reaction I feel because one of my questions now for making like things like that will follow making a murder is will there be another case like this to be digged into and then to like fight, uncover more things like what what do they do after this what happens when the cameras leave I think you've raised a really interesting point, well, both of you, in um, sort of who was picked and then situate that within the reality of the um, American prison system and how it's extremely disproportionate. Let me just round up this section by asking what is no doubt an unanswerable question, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> there was a petition of 500,000 signatures that was sent to the, to the White House from people who watched Making a Murderer calling for um, Stephen Avery to be uh, acquitted. Do you think there would have been such uh, an outcry by the viewing public had the figure of the uh, accused been a more typical figure of, of the prison population in America, had been a young black man? Absolutely not. I think the, the I think the level of sympathy towards him was not just because he was white, I'm, I'm not saying that at all, but the level of sympathy towards him was because of his previous injustices, because of the way the show was presented and the fact that there was this question of did he do it and did he not, whereas your typical offender who had committed such a violent act I mean, you may feel sympathy to a certain extent, but there would be a lot more factors at play that would actually make it very complicated to pick apart whether or not it was his fault. And without that level of entertainment, did he do it, did he not? Like you said, if it's not entertaining, are we even going to engage with it? And maybe that's why it did get such a um, wide audience as well, is because it was such a unique case, it was a violent crime, it was a miscarriage of justice. But then at the at a similar time that the Making a Murderer sort of came out and got all the hype and excitement, there was another Netflix documentary called The House We Live In, which approached the subject of hyper-incarceration of the black male community in America. And strangely, that did it, well, perhaps not strangely at all, that didn't get as big a response, if any, really, in comparison. And that's quite interesting because, in my opinion, that deals with the reality of crime in America and the outfall from that and talks about, you know, a genocide of the black population in America. But I think perhaps that's too uncomfortable and, like, too big of a subject for people to approach. Mm. This links into maybe larger questions about what difficulties you as criminologists face in justifying your discipline, in making people understand these complexities. You're saying that the reality of most cases is very complex. Do you find it very difficult to get across? I think um, what Liz was saying earlier about how it's it's difficult to accept a lot of the realities of the societies we live in, that's true. I, it, even for us, like every single day, Every article, every book, journal, uh, anything we read, 
usually at the end we just feel it's very depressing to know the reality like income there's things that you can hear and then there's things that the facts just plainly say and there's no reasoning that you can have that will make you feel better what Liz was, can you give an example of something that comes to mind or? hyper incarceration for example and how it, essentially it is the like a genocide of the black community because we, we were talking about prisoners rights and also voting rights as well um, because that's that's taken away when you're in prison and even when you're out of prison because of the disproportionate number of this uh, population in prison the amount of votes that are denied and the amount of political voices that are silenced it is a huge and it's all, it makes you wonder how is this any different from where we have been before with um, slavery and colonialism it's just shifting things to a place where the public cannot see cannot hear and then because of that it's easier to accept because we cannot see and cannot hear it's easier to accept things that feel very distant from you out of sight and out of mind mm -hmm. exactly that um but i think even with us i think every day i have to remind myself to just look at it again because i it's so much easier just to like skip past the hard things and just close the book and forget about it yeah and yeah and i think linking this back to the podcasts and the uh, documentaries and we must remember that that's entertainment and perhaps the reason why so the house we live in and 13th didn't get as big a audience and interest is because they, they're not actually that entertaining at all because it's it's reality it's depressing and how what do you do with it like once you realize that you feel very uncomfortable it's quite scary whereas with this like with um making a murderer it's one person you can get involved you can sort of think you can like, sign a petition you can sign yes. a petition <laughs> I've, i haven't seen a petition to end hyper incarceration no certainly and i think um, that's one of the things that you know criminologists we do and i think particularly for our generation in general we face a huge backlash against expertise intellectualism we're living in this bizarre post-truth apocalypse but um you know it really is our responsibility to bring these arguments forward in a way that people can understand and that is not uh, patronizing and that really articulates you know people this, these are people's lives we have a prison system that is fundamentally not working uh, but you know the daily mail will kick right off if they see a prison sentence that's too low um, and that's the kind of gap we're needing to bridge and it's a real challenge but i do think one thing I would say with criminology is, as, as just said, we do tend to go to places and people and situations that most people would rather not have to deal with because it is very hard. You know, we do study things like suicide in prisons. And so, you know, we are not quite in our ivory tower. We, we are, you know, we are dealing with things and, and getting to grips with things that are very difficult social problems. So I think there's that one misconception, I would say, is that, you know, especially with criminology, we sit up here. We're trying to get ourselves down. Mm -hmm. Just to maybe insert some examples of um, how it is very different from just theorizing and then applying it from top down. It's very uh, bottom up, I think, or at least that's what we try to do. Yeah. So not uh, prison uh, prisoner suicide was definitely one of the hardest topics to do, but it was also, we learned about um, maternal incarceration, adolescent to parent violence, kids who assault their parents essentially, and then um, how prison population of, of women and how this impacts the family. Because we rarely, when we think about the criminal justice system, we think about crime and offences, we think 
definitely there's a victim, there's an offender, and then we got the court. But we don't think about how it dissipates yeah. around the family of the offender, of the victim. And it's what that's what we do. We see how these influences go beyond the offender and go beyond the crime almost because so every ripples on a pond it is yeah. it is always a ripple on a pond there's always influences that you feel shouldn't be there but they they're there a lot of these serials and documentaries play into it seems this notion of our desire for simplicity to go away from this reality as you're talking about and for a good guy and a bad guy do you feel that our desire for good guys and bad guys really gets in the way of your work it's a very interesting question because I, there is a civil rights uh, lawyer um, called Brian Stevenson in the US who said, I had a question asked to him, have you, he, he specialises in death row, and he was asked, Do you, have you met anyone who is evil? And he said, no, I've met a lot of very ill, very sad and very troubled people, but I have yet to meet anyone who's evil, and he's been working on death row for 25 years. So I think that really speaks to the dichotomy that is created of good and evil and that's really instilled in us from a very young age and yeah it can be very challenging to try and represent someone for instance who's committed a sexual offence that's something that I very personally you feel very affronted by to then have to sit and be sympathetic and listen to that offender is it is challenging but that is why we do what we do and that's you know if you don't if you put them in a box and leave them to rot for the rest of their lives. You will never know why that offence occurred in the first place. It's a challenge, but you take it on and you go forward and try and think of a better solution. Yeah, I mean, in criminology, it's better not to use these evil terms of and course, stuff. Yeah. Um, so yes, I guess in the media, it is problematic because you might think that way because that's how it's presented. However, as Kate said, if you assign this evil label, it's impossible to deal with the offence. So with your example of sexual violence, um, the reality is that a lot of sexual offences occur within a family or with it's it's not a stranger rape that we, we fear. Sexual offences tend to be committed by people who you know. And it's it's not conducive to call that person evil and just put them away and not deal with it. It's better to actually unpick what is the dynamic within this family, why is this happening? Um, and that just can't be done if you assign those labels. We're coming to the end of our time, but I thought there's obviously one time in all of our lives, most likely, when we will be intimately involved with a, one particular corner of the justice system, which is as and when we get asked to do jury service. I don't know if any of us have, have yet been asked to do jury service. I no, haven't myself. No, no. no, no, we have you know, the rest of our lives. <laughs> um, but so this is a time when we're going to be asked as individuals to make these decisions in, in a court case. Do you feel that if we've been completely saturated in these both fictional drama detective series, but maybe even uh, more importantly, these real life serial making a murderer style documentaries, that that could have a very negative impact on our judgment in such cases. Our, our, our take on these things is very different from how our perceptions will be in real life. I think one of the main things to bear in mind, I think we said this at the beginning as well, is crime dramas are crime dramas. 
and I think to the credit of the producers and the screenwriters I think they do try to not mimic real life as much as they can even though I know um, the the real life dramas are another issue but I think once individuals become intimately involved physically with the criminal justice system during jury duty or in contact with the police your situation changes your mindset a lot and I think although your perceptions of such might be influenced your decisions and your actions in that moment will not be affected I think it will definitely be based on your values and then also your situation your condition and your environment I'm not sure. Do you agree? I, I agree. I think that whilst um, we all watch them and love them, these TV shows and uh, documentaries, once you're actually in that reality, if, you, if you've been asked to do jury service, you go there, you know you're not in a, in a movie. And I think that all the processes and sort of walking into the court and being presented with the case, I reckon people would deal with it as as a reality rather than sort of basing it on their ideas and preconceptions that they've seen on TV. But even if those preconceptions might have been based on these real life documentaries, so someone doing jury duty might have had no experience, no, never met someone from the kind of socioeconomic background who they're having to pass judgment upon. Mm. Okay, when have I heard about mm. such a person? Ah, oh, I remember making a murderer. Mm. Sometimes just, <laughs> just, just uh, picking an argument here. But uh, if that is your only source of reference, then surely that might figure out you quite strongly in the type of preconceptions you bring to the case. There is certainly, you know, it sounds like a dissertation maybe you could do. <laughs> um, uh, but I think, well, I think there's two things um, here. It, first of all, uh, if you have seen, had any contact with any of this sort of content that we've been talking about in the media, you have... Um, quite a strong idea of what a courtroom will be like. Courtrooms and time in court is incredibly lengthy. It's quite boring. Um, it often overruns. And I think that will, if you know, whatever preconceptions you have before you go in, you will leave probably quite bored, which is not to say that the case is boring, um, but because you are forced to basically sit in a room and listen to some very dry language. Um, and so the misconception that we have these kind of courtroom dramas that are very, you know, sassy and everyone's like getting each other down and this sort of stuff. Um, you know, in the US, 97% of all cases plead out before they make it to court. So they take a deal given to them by the public prosecutor and they just go either pay a bail, get a warning or go to jail. So I think that would be one of the first misconceptions that goes as soon as you walk in the courtroom. But certainly I think, yeah, you're right. If you haven't experienced it, you know, had an experience, say, with uh, someone like Adnan Syed, and that's the only yeah. reference point you have, you may be, you know, informed by that sort of, you know, is he a targeted minority or is he, you know, this evil uh, person that some think he is? Jess, are you, are you rowing back over the position <laughs> or are you, are you going strong? Um, uh, no, I'm st I still have faith in, in us. I feel, um, I'm, I can't really cite the study right now, but I know that we talked about a couple cases where there was research done. There's these, this idea that we all really, really like prisons in a way, as in we, we can't get rid of the prison because we feel like if there is a crime, this person needs to be punished, and so obviously we put them in prison. There's been a lot of debate on whether this is public opinion or this is like man manipulated public opinion. But there's been studies done about this and they've asked, um, so like random samples of people 
giving them the details of a case, real life or based on real life, and ask them to read through it. And they've all found that the people's responses have always been less punitive than what the actual sentence was, if it was based on a real case. People will always be more lenient if they read through everything, if they get to grips with the real like procedure. People are never as punitive as we think we are. <laughs> so I think definitely in the courtroom, I think maybe because it's so dry and so long and so like stretched out, you, you feel very obligated to put down your prejudices. Well, on that upbeat note, I think we'll call a close to this fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for, for coming in and sharing your expertise no, on this you. subject, which I certainly knew nothing at thank all about you. before we organised this show. <laughs> um, thank you very much for listening to In Our Spare Time and join us again next time. Thank you.